0: a Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struhle, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Paul Munnies was at the Oklahoma Capitol this week for the first day of the new legislative session, and Governor Kevin Stitt's fifth State of the State speech. The governor also released his budget plan for fiscal year 2024, which starts in July. Paul, what were the main themes that uh, Stitt touched on during that speech?
1: So Yeah, the, the governor kind of touched a lot on education, which obviously we knew was going to happen. He also talked about Oklahoma mm-hmm. keeping its business business friendly atmosphere, which means basically investments in workforce development and uh, lower taxes for, for businesses. He also talked quite a bit about freedom, gave a lot of lip service to that, especially about um, parents and schools, and um, kind of um, he had an initiative talking about fathers and the importance of those in building a community in, in any kind of life in the community. And so he kind of went on those themes, but had a lot to say mostly on education.
0: And uh, you know, he mentioned uh, tax cuts. Did he offer any specific proposals?
1: He did. He had three main big tax cuts. Uh, There were, of course, some continuation of what he's talked about in the past. Uh, The biggest one is uh, eliminating state share of the grocery sales tax. And then he also talked about cutting pretty big cuts to personal income tax rates and also the corporate income tax rates.
0: Uh, As you mentioned, uh, there was a lot of talk about education. What kind of priorities did he outline there?
1: That's right. So as expected, he's touting, again, um, educational savings accounts, which are basically what people call vouchers, um, allowing people to take a s- section of, of state money and pay for private uh, or charter schools that have tuitions. Um, that was probably his biggest part, of course, as Secretary of Education and the new Superintendent of Instruction, Ryan Walters, talked about that as well. That's an issue that obviously came up last year and didn't really get much place. Um, it was kind of stalled in the House mostly, and there'll be some issues again this year on that front, too.
0: right, now, Stick called for more stringent campaign finance laws. Uh, What could the legislature do to, uh, you know, tone down some of the dark money spending?
1: Yeah, he... he didn't go into much detail on that front, but did say that he didn't like the fact that there was all these outside groups spending all this money in the campaign. And a lot of it was targeted at him last year, too. So he's probably a little sore about that as well. Uh, legislature could kind of follow the lead of some other states like Arizona, which actually had a, a ballot initiative to uh, disclose some of the outside funding in some of these campaigns at the state level, um, you know, on the campaign trail. Uh, last year, Stitt kind of decried that kind of outside dark money spending, um, but he hasn't had any specific prozo- proposals that he would pry back in the legislation that we've seen yet.
0: Well, Republicans have uh, super majorities in both the House and the Senate. Uh, but what did Democrats have to say about Stitt's speech? Well, House Democrats
1: kind of decried some of the uh, exclusive uh, language that, w- that Stitt was touting, basically targeting some of the ch- transgender uh, people who actually were out of the Capitol um, protesting yesterday, too, uh, along with their supporters. They also said that Stitt's tax cuts uh, were a good idea on the grocery tax side, which they've been calling for for years. But they, they expressed a little more caution on cutting the income tax rates for personal and, in, and corporate income taxes, saying that's kind of how we got into the problems we had five or six years ago with revenue failure at the state level.
0: Was there anything you heard in Stitt's speech that surprised you? Uh, he did mention
1: a couple of things. Um, it wasn't completely surprising that he mentioned broadband, but he didn't say anything about the massive amounts of federal money going to fund that through the ARPA programs and several other federal laws that came into effect under the Democrats in D.C. Um, He also um, really didn't talk much about, um, you know, he talked about affordable energy, but didn't mention that utility bills have been rising for for the last couple of years among all the customers in the state, based on, you know, the winter storms from two years ago, as well as just rising natural gas prices. In fact, he touted the state's affordable energy, uh, which a lot of consumers are not seeing right now. Uh, He also went into uh, the fact that other companies are moving to the state but didn't mention the biggest uh, incentive package last year, which is almost $700 million to go to Panasonic for a battery factory that in fact, instead went to Kansas.
0: What about uh, Stitt's proposed budget? What were the highlights from that?
1: So he spent a lot of money and a lot of time talking about the tax cut side of it. And so the tax cuts, obviously the three main things, the grocery sales tax they said would cost state revenue about $350 million a year. Um, they said that his personal income tax, r- lowering the rate to 3.99% down from the highest rate of 4.75 would cost about $261 million in this year's budget, and then lowering the corporate income tax rate would cost about $43 million. Um, so there was big buckets, buckets of money on tax cuts for there, and of course, there's about a total of uh, $380 million uh, in educational spending that he's talking about, including funding the vouchers are um, savings accounts uh, to the tune of $130 million. Uh, Also, he's talked about a performance-based teacher pay plan uh, that he would fund with $50 million. And then an innovative school fund to go um, basically to different types of learning models, including he touted um, one aviation academy down in Norman. Uh, he would have a whole fund for that amounted to about $100 million. And then finally, um, he's talked about, and Superintendent Walters has talked about, a reading initiative. There's not a whole lot of uh, meat on that plan yet, uh, but a $100 million for that um, that they're talking about. And then um, there's some, some smaller stuff for concurrent enrollment that he would like higher ed to do, allowing that that to go to uh, freshmen and sophomores um, and pay for concurrent enrollment at junior colleges.
0: All right, well, thanks, Paul. You can read uh, all of Paul's coverage of Governor Stitt's State of the State speech as the legislative session kicks off this year on our website, oklahomawatch.org. <music> Reporter Ari Fife has been working on a preview of. Some anti-LGBTQ bills filed ahead of the legislative session. She's here to tell us more about what to expect as lawmakers return to the Capitol and get the legislative session underway. Ari, are there any themes in subject matter that you've seen running through these bills?
2: Yeah, so there are a couple main buckets that many of the bills that I'm covering fall into. One of those is limits to gender-confirming care, and the other is impacts to school policies regarding things like discussion of LGBTQ issues and inclusion of LGBTQ books in schools. But then there are a bunch of ones that kind of affect different aspects of social life and self-expression for a lot of LGBTQ Oklahomans outside of that. Um, Some that stand out are four bills banning drag shows in the presence of minors and another that could line the legislature up to challenge a federal law recognizing marriage equality.
0: So uh, how about the number of bills? Are we seeing more this session uh, compared to prior years?
2: So Freedom, Oklahoma Executive Director Nicole McAfee said that this year has brought on the most anti-LGBTQ bills ever for the state. Their organization tracked 27 anti-LGBTQ bills last year, but I'm covering 40 this time around.
0: Wow. And why do we think that is? Why the spike?
2: So according to Nicole, it's kind of a variety of factors. They brought up the fact that Oklahoma is probably reflecting national trends to some degree. The issues that I've mentioned have become more contentious across the country in recent years, and bills like the ones we're seeing here have been on the rise in other states as well. But then they also said that part of it could be a result of long-standing impacts from the pandemic. COVID kind of allowed... Lawmakers to become isolated from their constituents, which could allow them to author these bills without seeing the harm firsthand. All
0: right. Now, you uh, mentioned you saw a lot of bills that would limit gender confirming care. What what does that look like?
2: So gender confirming care can look A lot of different ways. But many of the bills that I'm covering affect three broad types. One of those is puberty blockers, which delay puberty to allow kids to kind of explore their gender identity and make a decision on how they want to express that. And then another area is hormone therapy, which injects male or female hormones into a person's body, and gender confirmation procedures, which can be permanent and are meant to align a person's body more with their gender identity.
0: And that's been a pretty contentious topic nationally in recent years, hasn't it? What What's it look like in Oklahoma?
2: Yeah. So in a special session last year, Governor Stitt signed Senate Bill 3, which prevented the OU... H- OU Children's Hospital from receiving ARPA funding unless it stopped offering gender confirmation procedures to minors. And that facility did stop those procedures after that law went into effect. But some lawmakers think that that's not enough. And they've been calling for a broader statewide ban on those procedures.
0: Now, there were, uh, as always, hundreds of shell bills introduced for the session, Um, You never know where those are going to go, but can you uh, tell us uh, any of those that you saw that might be related to these subjects?
2: Yeah, so there were six bills that I'm looking at um, filed by Representative McCall, Representative Humphrey, and Representative Hassenbeck. And they don't have much information included in them other than the fact that they relate to marriage and families, but they are concerning to some LGBTQ advocates who think that they could be tied to that federal Respect for Marriage Act that only went into effect a few months ago.
0: All right. And so what's next for these bills?
2: Yeah. So the first day of session was this Monday, and some of the bills I'm covering have already been assigned to committees, although as far as I can tell, they haven't been taken up for consideration by those committees yet. But there are um, going to be more committee assignments over the next few days, and ultimately, only a small portion of bills introduced will get a hearing, and an even smaller portion will make it to the governor's desk.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Ari. You can read uh, Ari's coverage of uh, those bills on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. And Paul Muniz is back with us uh, this week. He uh, was part of a joint investigation with KWTV News 9 on the soaring electric and natural gas bills facing most Oklahoma utility customers. Uh, Paul, how did the collaboration with News 9 come about?
1: Yeah, so this was uh, an idea that uh, the reporter Dana Hurtnicki pitched to me last year in, in December, uh, and she said, you know, we we're, we're Cheek by Jowl downtown and our offices together. Uh, we have a lot of opportunity for collaboration, uh, different audiences, different types of reporting and, and that we do, but they wanted to go in depth on some of those utility bills that customers are seeing. And so we embarked on kind of this couple months process of, of looking through public records, regulatory filings, talking experts, and of course, talking to customers who are getting hit pretty hard by these bills.
0: Now, you've covered uh, those uh, rising costs before, uh, back to a couple years ago when the ice storm um, was involved in creating all that. Um, Tell us about how we got from there to here.
1: That's right. Yeah. About a year ago, we also had a collaboration with a national nonprofit called Floodlight, looking at specifically one of the securization bills uh, going through the Corporation Commission, Um, on Oklahoma Natural Gas. And there was a lot of uh, discussion on that about how fair it was for customers, uh, not just the actual bill part that they're seeing now, but also how fair it was for them to charge what was called an exit fee. In that process, that exit fee got written up, got uh, cut out of the whole um, plan. And basically they said it wasn't really fair to customers, but of course, customers are still paying for decades on those other parts of the charges for fuel from 2021.
0: Right. And you might uh, remind us, uh, as I recall, the exit fee was that if you converted gas appliances to electric, you you had to pay uh, the gas company for the privilege of doing that. Wasn't that uh, roughly how it worked?
1: That's right. Yeah. In order to pay the bonds back, there's huge bonds that were paying, um, they had to basically ensure that all the customers could pay over those decades. And they didn't want people switching from a gas household to a purely electric household. And they said, if you want to make that switch to electrify your whole house, which obviously costs quite a Bit of money, then you'd have to pay the gas company thirty five, four thousand, thirty five hundred dollars, four thousand dollars, depending on the size of your house. And of course, a lot of customers were like, well, "Wait a minute, that that's way separate issue from what we were paying on the storm costs."
0: Right. Oh, now uh, this round of reporting on that topic, what was your biggest takeaway?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously consumers are still pretty angry about their bills and for good cause. I mean, they thought, I think everybody thought that was involved that someone else was going to take care of maybe some of the high costs that were going in there. The legislature came through, they passed the option for utilities to use called securitization, which involves paying out those bonds over several years. Uh, you know, the attorney general's office is supposed to protect consumers in these regulatory cases. Uh, they didn't do much on price investigation on the actual costs themselves. Um, and then the utilities basically said, look, we were keeping the lights on. That was our charge during an emergency. We had to pay these high costs to our suppliers and we have to pass them on to our customers. So the biggest surprise to me was basically everyone thought they were doing their part of the job, but then in the end, the consumers didn't really get much, get great representation from people who were supposed to be protecting them.
0: Now, uh, Oklahoma was not the only state affected by that 2021 winter storm. Uh, what have some of the other states done for consumers there? That's right. Yeah. I mean, we had probably by far the highest
1: costs on natural gas as a price um, among all the 15 states um, in that storm. Uh, other states have kind of gone similar routes. They've, they've allowed their legislature to pass securization bills and allow utilities to kind of put the that off their corporate books onto the bonds. Um, we've also looked at, you know, what's happened in some other states in terms of uh, their attorney general has been more active in protecting consumers, especially in a state like Minnesota. Uh, they took about 10 percent off the storm costs for utilities up there and said, look, utilities weren't doing their jobs and we're not looking out for consumers in the right way. So there were other models to look at and other states did go that route. And in fact, Probably one of the more interesting ones was in Arkansas, um, where OGE, one of our big, um, electric utilities here in Oklahoma has about 60, 70,000 customers. They are, they have securization as an option under as a law that they passed, but uh, they're going what's called the regulatory asset route. So it's a shorter payback time for them and will probably be cost their customers less over the life of that plan for Arkansas customers.
0: Now, uh, I think it's a safe prediction to say that sooner or later, there will be another ice storm, right? So what are the utilities doing to make sure we don't uh, find ourselves in a similar situation and, and those bills go up even higher for 20 or 30 years?
1: That's right. Yeah, the the state's two biggest electric utilities, uh, OG&E and PSO, have said that they've put more gas in the storage in those times of year, which kind of really caught them flat-footed, having that amount of gas uh, demand on their systems to power their electric plants. Um, And so they've got more storage. They said they're making better um, plans on buying gas on a more regular basis, uh, first of the month, rather than buying on the spot market, which both of them were doing all the time and had to do during the winter storm two years ago. And, and then we talked to also some producers and suppliers out in the field. Um, you know, in Oklahoma, the wellhead equipment froze off a little bit sometimes. The pipelines were, you know, lacking in some of the pressure when the, the, it was so cold. So some of those producers in the field have started winterizing a little bit more. But also they're realizing, too, that, you know, most of the time, they're worried about hot, hot weather in Oklahoma in the peaking times uh, in the summer for air conditioning. And so, you know, they know there's a trade-off. If they winterize all their equipment, it'll be more insulated in the summer and probably not as good to let heat go in those times. So they have to kind of have a walk a fine line on, on how they winterize their equipment, but making sure they're ready for the next storm, too. All
0: right. Now, Paul, you mentioned uh, PSO and OG&E. Uh, what did Oklahoma Natural Gas uh, have to say? Well, we tried
1: to get them on camera with News 9, and uh, they they kind of refused. Um, They basically um, referred us to statements they've already made in regulatory filings. Um, Now, they have said that they have more gas in storage now, too, um, but that they are, you know, they did not talk to us and answer specific questions, which was unfortunate as a reporter.
0: Now, uh, several groups are using uh, that wave of consumer anger to kind of restarted discussion over whether the state's electricity market should be deregulated uh, like Texas. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah, we've got a couple of interest groups that are kind of on both sides of the issue. There's one that's kind of protecting the idea of regulatory model that's current right now, um, with the biggest companies going through the Corporation Commission to have kind of their business um, checked by regulators. And then there's another group that wants to kind of deregulate the market, which obviously was a big issue about a generation ago, um, right before the fall of Enron, which was a big uh, story about 20 years ago. Uh, and that was a big factor in deregulating some markets, especially in Texas. And so um, they're, they've got some uh, proposals that the legislature that we'll kind of see and we're keeping an eye on, but definitely they're ca- capitalizing on that consumer anger to say, hey, maybe there's a different way to do these uh, utility regulations and maybe we could have a better free market for that.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read uh, all of Paul's coverage uh, about the uh, gas prices and the long-term payment Oklahomans are facing to uh, retire that bill. Uh, You'll find it all on our website at OklahomaWatch.org. And while you're there, you can also uh, view the video from Channel 9's part of that investigation that aired last week. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struli. Thanks for listening.